And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Muddy Knees Media. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this week's Totally Football League show, Extra Time. Our goal is to be your one-stop shop for all things EFL midweek review and weekend preview. But we've got a special guest as well joining us today. I'm Ali Maxwell. On the line with me today, George Ellick. George, please run me through what we've got ahead on the Totally Football League show, Extra Time, brought to you by Paddy Power. Yeah, it's a simple menu today. It is the midweek recap, followed by an interview with the athletic writer Phil Buckingham, who will talk to about the proposed takeover at Sunderland, as well as the return of fans into stadiums as of next week. And we'll finish off, as ever, with our sponsors Paddy Power, previewing our favourite, most interesting, most exciting games ahead of the weekend. Still struggling to understand what happened in the midweek fixtures in the EFL? Well, struggle no longer. We're here to talk you through it. You're listening to the Totally Football League show, Extra Time, in association with Paddy Power. The Black Friday slash pre-Christmas sales are well underway and from today until Friday the 4th of December, you can get yourself a subscription to The Athletic for £1 a month for an entire calendar year. That means unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a breaking news service, exclusive Q&As with athletic staff and ad-free versions of all the athletics podcasts for just £1 per month. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash league show. Yes, so finally the international break was over and that meant a return to midweek football. These are the games that sometimes slip under the radar but not on the Totally Football League show Extra Time. We are here to talk you through the team, player and managers of the midweek roster. And Ali, starting with you in the Championship, who was your team of the week? So our team of the week, George, we very much co-award these. We're a team. So we are a team. Let's be clear on that. Yes, we are. And we're giving it to Blackburn Rovers. They won 3-0 at Deepdale against their rivals, Preston. And I, I think the fact that it was against a rival gives them a little boost. I think the fact that there weren't a ton of magnificent performances across the championship this midweek also helped their case. And they were given a helping hand by a red card just before half time to Joe Rafferty. Not just a red card, but a penalty as well, which put them 1-0 up. So I'm, I'm already sort of mitigating what I'm saying. But believe me <laughs> when I tell you that Rovers were by far the better side before the red card. They were excellent before it. And after it, they... They were rampant. They took their rivals apart with glee. And it's so exciting to watch this Blackburn side at the moment. The front three of Armstrong through the middle, who is having one hell of a goal-scoring season and scored the penalty. Ben Brereton, who is a young player that has played probably more football than almost anyone at his age, having broken through at Nottingham Forest, got what was a fairly big money move to Rovers and having had a full season last year, a first-team action where... There were a lot of people questioning whether he was able to 
basically score the goals and get the assists that you need to be a first team attacking player in the championship. But it turns out he just needed that season to settle because this year he's been absolutely brilliant. And again, on Tuesday night, he was, you know, he wasn't the headline player perhaps for Rovers because ah, because of Dolan's goal against the side that released him in the summer, because Armstrong notched another goal to go further clear at the top of the goal scoring charts, but just purely for for the selfless running that Brereton does, the intelligence of his play, the pressing defence could not get a handle on him. And, and the other thing that I found out midweek, which I'm really excited about, is that Ben Brereton has a Chilean mother and is therefore eligible <laughs> for the Chilean national team. And if you look at his Instagram page, his comments are just flooded at the moment with Chilean fans just dropping the Chilean flag emoji in the <laughs> comments, trying to get Brereton's, trying to catch his eye and trying to get him to uh, to commit to Chile. I mean, I would be all for that, I have to say. Um, but he was excellent. And yeah, I mean, I focused on the attacking side there, uh, which is what we know, where we know Blackburn thrive really, but they were defensively sound as well. Preston barely had a for the whole game and, um, and and therefore credit to Blackburn's back four who at times maybe haven't sparkled to quite the same extent as their attacking players. A, a nice moment for Tyrese Dolan to score against the team that released him in the summer. As I mentioned, he's been proving them wrong with, with each passing week and Joe Rothwell was brilliant in midfield for them. Burst forward to set up Brereton for his goal uh, and just one of many players who seem to be developing alongside the team as a whole. Blackburn Perhaps with Middlesbrough, I would say, the side that seems to have made the biggest progress, improved the most compared to their their season last season. Uh, and it's been great to watch. They're not quite towards the top because they've had some injuries and they are a flawed side defensively, as we've said. But plenty to be excited about as a Rovers fan. They are our team of the midweek in the championship, which leads us on to the question, George, who is the player of the week? Now, I, I promise at some stage soon, Ali, I'm going to stop telling anecdotes of my day spent with Danny Cowley at Quest on Saturday. But this uh, this starts with that because we were watching the games on Saturday afternoon together and he pointed at a player and he said, if there's any player that a striker should watch, a budding striker should watch for their movement and for how they can get away from people in the box, it is this man. And that man is called a brace on Tuesday night at Stoke. It is, of course, Timo Puki. And it is true because you look at Puki, he's not quick. He's not particularly strong, yet he consistently finds himself in areas where he's able to get shots at goal and it helps that he's incredibly clinical as well. Uh, I think if you looked at this game after half an hour where Norwich would tune it up, it probably looked like Emmy Buendia would be the star of the show, having got the first goal and then a beautiful assist for the second and Pukki's first. But he ended up showing that hot head side that he's got and got a, got a red card which brought Stoke back into the game. But Norwich did run out 3-2 winners. Uh, but Pukki's finishes here, especially the one from uh, Brendia's ball, are just so clinical. And you look at the XG stats for the game, Stoke 2.03, Norwich 0.97. It's just showing, again, it's what we saw from Norwich back in the season where they were promoted a couple of years ago. The data didn't really stack up that favourably, but they've got a player in Pukki who's able to get, get a sight of goal and put it away. And that's what we saw here. It's reminiscent of that team now, isn't it? You look through the, the players who are playing well. Steeperman again playing in behind Pukki was very good uh, and got the assist for Buendia's goal. Buendia off the right. Josh Martin had his first start for the club, a 19-year-old left-sided player and got the assist uh, for the third goal. It's his first championship start for them and I'm very interested to see what he does because we've seen recently just how good these Norwich Academy grads are. But Pukki certainly 
the staff of the show. And we used to say no Pookie, no party for Norwich. And it feels like that is starting to come true again. If he's going to find this goal scoring form again, it's very, very difficult to see Norwich outside of that 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 race for the top end of the table. And I think, you know, maybe had, had Brendier not been sent off, we might be talking about this as, as the performance of the midweek, possibly. Uh, I don't want to take anything away from Blackburn, but, you know, the, the tide turned after the red card, but certainly the performance that Pookie put in. And I do recommend anybody, um, maybe not just budding strikers, like Danny said, anybody uh, should watch Pookie's goals back because they are clinical and they show exactly what a good bit of movement and an eye for goal can do. So... It wasn't easy picking a manager of the midweek uh, because, well, only one award per team. So Mowbray and Fark are ineligible for this one. Could it have been Mark Warburton? QPR's first half performance was very impressive. A blitz that saw them take a 3-1 lead against Rotherham. They ended up winning that game 3-2. Mark Robbins' Coventry side got a 1-0 win against Cardiff. His switch to back four is, uh, to a back four rather has seen... Kov pick up four points in their last two games. Much needed points as well to keep them just outside the relegation zone. Thomas Frank, a couple of tactical tweaks in the second half that saw Brentford grow into that game against Barnsley. They restricted Barnsley to very few chances throughout, but it did take a Tony flicked header from a set piece. Brentford just not firing on all cylinders going forward at the moment. So, to be honest with you, I feel like we've been talking about him a lot recently, but I'm going to go with Neil Warnock, Middlesbrough's 3-0 win against Derby you might say that opposition is not the toughest in the league at the moment and you'd be right to say that but a bit like what I said with Blackburn I think that we're just seeing at the moment how far Borough have come under Neil Warnock it's always worth remembering that when he was appointed not long after we'd returned post lockdown with probably what was it eight games to go Middlesbrough had dropped into the relegation zone and the performances and the general atmosphere of the club under Jonathan Woodgate had been such that it was very hard to see them getting out of it until they hired Neil Warnock and then I think everyone agreed that it wouldn't be long until they did of course they did survive fairly comfortably in the end they weren't involved in in any final day shenanigans and they are developing in front of our eyes this season they had complete control of this game from about the half hour mark Derby uh, a little like they did against Bristol City, started fairly brightly, but just couldn't maintain it. And once Borough went ahead, Derby only had one good chance for the rest of the game, uh, Sibley shooting wide. But otherwise, they did what Borough do. They, they shut the game down completely and enjoyed plenty of space on the counter-attack. And, you know, there, there's so much focus on how good they are defensively. You know, the, the only goal they've conceded in the last six league games was a penalty on the weekend against Norwich. And we've we've kind of said that scoring goals is the issue. Clearly, that's the case. The three games prior to this, they hadn't scored at all. But there are signs that this Borough side can be good going forward. Like, I don't think, and I don't want to disparage another manager while praising one, but when you watch a Tony Pulis side, they're known for their defensive organisation and you really don't see a huge amount of attacking intent. That's not the case with Warnock. His sides are excellent and defensively brilliantly organised, but they do show intent to attack. And I think that that means that there's there's potential here for them to grow in an attacking sense. And, and potentially that's what they need, really, if they're going to, to sort of really challenge the top two or certainly the playoff places, and they're not too far off at the moment. I mean, clearly I'm getting excited about this Borough side. Local journalists as we're about to hear, might be getting excited. But Warnock himself, not so much. When you came in towards the end of last season, you struggled to see, apart from probably the strikers, where on earth this team was going to score goals from. Now all of a sudden, George is carrying a goal-scoring threat when he gets in the box. 
Marvin's come on and scored. Jed looks like he's got goals in him. You know, you, you, you've got players who last season didn't look like they were ever going to score. Now it looks like they've got it in them. No, I know. Um, don't get carried away, son. <laughs> oh, he's too good. He's too good. He's doing that every week at the moment. We could probably have a Warnock clip in this show each week. George, tell me about the team of the midweek in League One. But don't get carried away. <laughs> the team of the week in League One came back from a 2-0 deficit to win 3-2. It is, of course, Doncaster Rovers who beat Blackpool after going behind. And this was, I think, any time, any time a team comes from behind, you've got to be, you know, especially from 2-0 down at half time, you've got to give them massive credit. And this is a Doncaster side who, at the moment, never know when they're dead, never know when they're down. We saw in the weekend before they played against Sunderland, they were 1-0 down going to the 93rd minute before Okunabire scored a very, very late equaliser. And here we saw again the spirit that Darren Moore has instilled in this side. And Blackpool, let's remember, I mean, pretty quietly, have been one of the form teams in the league. Uh, they'd won their last five in all competitions. They came into this on the back of a 2-1 win away at Peterborough. Neil Critchley had been saying, you know, this was the kind of form and football that he'd started to expect from his Blackpool side. Since the arrival of of, of Daniel Gretterson, their defence looked so much more solid. Kenny Dougal coming in at centre midfield as well. CJ Hamilton is fast becoming, in my opinion, one of the best wingers in the league. So personally, I wasn't surprised when I saw Hamilton put Blackpool 2-0 up away at Doncaster, a side who've been good this season. And I was surprised to see the way that Doncaster came back into it, given Blackpool's defensive solidity recently. Darren Moore deserves credit here. He might not be our manager of the uh, of the midweek, but certainly in terms of the, of the big change that he made at half-time. James Coppinger, the 39-year-old um, talisman for this side. It's a brave decision to bring him off at half-time. Brought on Taylor Richards, 20 years his younger and within seven minutes of the second half, Richards had an assist and they were back on level terms. And according to, to most of the fans the, uh, who watched the game on iFollow and, and the local press, it was Richards' influence on the game with his direct running and his pace and his ability on the ball that changed this one as well. And ben Whiteman, of course, maybe the, the other talisman, the younger talisman than Coppinger getting the penalty uh, to make it 3-2. This is just a really big result for Doncaster and I think that they will have so much belief. It's a, it's a young side when, when you get rid of Coppinger. Uh, but twice now against good League One, League One teams, they've shown a character to come back and get points that looked very much against them, uh, certainly during the game. So Doncaster, the League One uh, team of the midweek after their win against Blackpool, Ali, who have you got as the player? <laughs> yeah, player of the midweek in League One is a Hull City player and it's their right back, Josh Emmanuel. So Hull went to Portman Road on Tuesday and left with a very comfortable 3-0 win that really seemingly was never in doubt. It, it looked quite easy for them. And we've said that about quite a lot of Hull's wins recently. They're doing exceptionally well this season. And it's the manner of their wins. They just seem unfussy. They seem like professional wins. And this definitely fit into that category. 10 wins now from their 13 league games, 30 points at this stage. It's a hell of a start. And Josh Emmanuel has been... A very, very big part of that from right back and probably something of a surprise for Hull fans and for observers like us that he's even first choice here because in the summer, as well as picking up Emmanuel, Hull signed Louis Coyle, who's a right back who has mostly spent the last few years 
on loan at Fleetwood from Leeds, then joined Fleetwood permanently for a short time and in the summer moved to Hull. And it felt like he was being signed because at this level, as a right back, he'd been a consistently good performer, still quite young and someone who just would slot in and be Hull's right back for the for the foreseeable. But Emmanuel got a chance thanks to an injury to Coyle and hasn't looked back. He's been one of their best players this season. And his performance on Tuesday was just everything that he's been, um, both very, very good and hugely involved in their attacking play. He's got a great partnership with Malik Wilkes, who plays off the right, but you know he's, he is a pure goal threat, Wilkes, and he spends the majority of his time you know, between the, the, the edges of the box, um, waiting for chances to fall for him onto his left foot, which is how he, he notched that first goal in the week. And so Emmanuel's really got the freedom of the right side, but because of his attributes, that's fine. You know, he can do the job that's needed both defensively and going forward seemingly at this level. Um, his crossing accuracy stands out this season. Uh, he's, he's taking more than four crosses per game, which isn't necessarily a good stat. If you've got a fullback taking five crosses a game, but he's useless at crossing, then it's a bit of a waste of possession. <laughs> but Emmanuel's crossing accuracy, uh, he finds a teammate with over half of those crosses, which stacks up very well against other fullbacks at this level, as does his dribbling ability. A powerful runner with the ball, more dribbles than any other fullback in the division. And again, he completes them at a successful rate. So he's not just running down blind alleys. He can find space. He can beat a left back and get a good cross in as well. And it's been huge for Hull. He was excellent on Tuesday night and it will have been a sweet one for him because he came through at Ipswich Town, came through and didn't never he never really got the chance that it felt like he deserved. I mean, they've they've had other players in that position, of course, but he had brilliant loans with Rotherham in League One, winning promotion with them. First half of Shrewsbury's great season a couple of years ago, he was there right back and Ipswich recalled him because of his performances. But again, he, he could never quite break into that team. So going to Portman Road on Tuesday, putting in another accomplished performance at right back, getting a comfortable win. That would have been very, very sweet indeed. Josh Emmanuel needs to be talked about as one of the best fullbacks in League One at the moment. So this was my chance. He is our player of the midweek in League One. Yeah, the manager of the midweek now. And this is becoming a bit of a trend. I feel like I'm sometimes, not rude, but just a bit disparaging about a manager's, the job that he's doing. And then pretty quickly, I'm giving them the manager of the midweek award. Uh, This time (laughs) it is the turn of Jake Buxton, who has endured a really difficult start to life as a manager. You know, he's taken over at Burton Albion, a club that we, I think, are just accustomed to their overachievement. You know, year on year, even though they're a championship club very recently, they are punching above their weight in League One. And I think it was significant to see that Nigel Clough moved on in the summer when you know, they were pretty honest and it just didn't make any financial sense for him to stay there. Um, and now he's, he's turned up at a League Two club. So Jake Buxton came in, I think, with expectations fairly low, um, but not as low as being stuck at the bottom of, of League One on seven points through 13 games, which is where they were coming into this one against Charlton. Scoring goals hasn't been too much of an issue for them so far this season. It's keeping balls out at uh, the other end that's been a real cause of concern for them. But they went up against the Charlton side, whose form in League One has been absolutely superb. They won six on the bounce before drawing one all the way at Gillingham on Saturday. So seven, I think it's eight unbeaten prior to this one. So this, according to the form book, looked like an absolute dead cert for an away win. But Burton had other ideas. It was Lewis, Lucas Aikens, uh, the old stalwart there, who's played pretty much every position for Burton, who got them 
underway and, and took the lead after nine minutes. But it's just the, you know, they were they were good value for their win. Um, we had to see uh, Charlton making changes early in the first half with Chuck Seneke coming on for Omar Bogle. Um, but they were 3-1 up through 53 minutes. Uh, the centre-back Hughes, who'd been out of the side with uh, through suspension, came in and got a goal. It just was a, it was a different, more professional performance from Burton. And I think Buxton deserves credit for that as well, especially given, you know, that after 67 minutes, NAK put them, put Charlton back within a goal at 3-2. And you'd think, having seen Burton at times this season, that would be the time where they maybe would crumble. But absolutely none of it. Vernon made it 4-2 later on. And I think this is the key now, because even I was asked on Saturday, you know, should we be fearful for Jake Buxton? And I think probably not. You know, Ben Robinson is a manager, is a, sorry, is an owner at Burton who's very, very proud of his record of only having sacked one manager. That was Paul Pescasolido uh, over a decade ago. And they do feel, especially given kind of the financial uh, climate at the moment, like the one club where it wouldn't be a massive surprise to see Burton be relegated and it wouldn't be a massive surprise to see Robinson retain that faith in Buxton and see him still at the club next season in League Two. I mean, more performances and results like this, that won't be an ev- be be the case because uh, you'd expect them to do better. But I do feel like as a young manager, he's in a great position. He's at a great club in which to learn. And maybe this result on Saturday will give him, both him and his team, the belief that they can mix it with these teams in League One. And those people writing them off early, such as maybe myself, might have to eat humble pie in a couple of weeks. So a huge win for Jake Buxton, a massive win for Burton as well. Uh, Not one that any of us saw coming. And he's a very, very deserving winner of this manager of the midweek award in League One. Yeah, absolutely. There were wins in midweek as well for Gillingham against Wimbledon, for Posh against Argyle, for Accrington against Crewe. What good form they're in at the moment. Lincoln went to Swindon and left with a 1-0 win. And then there was a smattering of draws in there as well. The team of the week of the midweek in League Two, the easiest selection of the show. Exeter City beat Colchester 6-1 on Tuesday night. And look, I am unashamedly a fan of extreme examples of youth <laughs> development. And th- this Exeter side, along with a group at Crew Alexandra, who we've spoken about a lot, who are a year or two down the line from where Exeter are and are thriving in League One, is the most admirable example in the EFL at the moment. Five of the 11 players for Exeter that have played the most league minutes this season are youth academy graduates. The right-back Key, left-back Sparks, central midfield player Collins, left midfielder Joel Randall and diminutive forward Matt Jay. And this was the best demonstration yet of what this group can do. They scored after 20 minutes against Colchester and they just kept scoring. It was absolutely relentless. It was gleeful, to be honest, and it was brilliant to watch. The third goal was the best of the lot. Uh, a ball into Randall, uh, who had tucked in off the left flank into the into that left sort of channel. He touched it back to Collins, who zipped it first time onto the toe of the on-running left-back Sparks, who'd run into that space vacated by Randall's movement. His low cross was perfect, straight onto the foot of the sliding Bowman, or the greatest Bowman, as the Exeter <laughs> City Twitter account are calling him. He's got a hat-trick in this game, not one of the youngsters, but actually one of the older players like Jake Taylor, like Tom Parks, who I think you probably need to have in order to help these uh, this group of young players sort of settle into their careers and, and, and give them advice and look after them on the pitch as well, to a certain extent. Matt Jay and Joel Randall had excellent games. These are both 
classic Exeter gradu graduates, uh, mobile attacking players who put pressure on the opposition, clearly have footballing intelligence and the technical ability to cause problems in the final third. Of course, over the summer, or rather during the transfer window, Exeter made more than £3 million just from Ollie Watkins' sell-on clause when he moved to Aston Villa. That will be partly moved back into the academy, making sure they can churn out more and more players like him. Of course, Ethan Ampadu, if he's ever transferred from Chelsea, will have a, a similar clause. 16-year-old Ben Christine left this summer for Aston Villa as well. Another one poached from their academy. But it, it's so admirable what they're doing. And hopefully they can keep this group together. They've got to be looking at crew for inspiration and proof, mm. I guess, of what, what can be done if a group is given time to develop together. They've got a manager in Matt Taylor, who's a young manager in terms of experience, but has been impressing us for a few years now. And they're not far off, are they? They look like a Again, they're going to be towards the top of this division. And yeah, George, there's a lot to like at the moment with Exeter City and this flock and this flock of young players. <laughs> You're not the only person who's noticed this. I actually got a DM at 4.38am from Exeter fan Ben Shepherd, who just couldn't wait. I mean, maybe he knew that we were going to be talking about Exeter and the academy grads, but these are mm. remarkable stats. It's kind of aligns with what you were saying. 13 of Exeter's 26 league goals this year have been scored by Academy products in all competitions. That's the league, the FA Cup and the EFL trophy. Exeter have scored 39 goals, 23 of them scored by Academy grads. That is seriously impressive. And I can understand why Ben was struggling to sleep with those numbers going through his mind. Maybe that's just the whole ethos of the development of players. They get up early, they work hard. You know, youth development never <laughs> sleeps, George, as you well know. Tell me about the player of the midweek in League Two. Yeah, it, it was difficult because we had to talk about Stevenage. We have to talk about Stevenage. They beat Port Vale 2-1. It was their first league win since the second game of the season when they beat Oldham 3-0. Um, but there was no taking the team of the midweek away from Exeter. There was no taking the manager of the midweek off the man that you're going to be speaking about in a couple of minutes. <laughs> so I did a little bit of digging into this Stevenage side because it did look like this 2-1 win against Port Vale was basically a team effort. It was a very solid, well-rounded performance from a side who'd been struggling recently. They were good value for their win as well. They won the shot count 15-9. They created plenty of chances. Danny Newton... And uh, Aramide Ote got, got the two goals and were lively up front. And we've mentioned it on the podcast before, the Stevenage side have been very unlucky. There have been a lot of games they've drawn or lost that have been marginal. And it did feel like a continuation of their performances would lead to points. And maybe we're starting to see that. But there is one man, you know, I've got to give it to a player. It's not Ote, it's not Newton. It is Tom Pett. Now, Tom Pett joined the club uh, in the summer and he hasn't played a great deal of football for Stevenage. He's a... Very classy, very capable centre midfield player who's, who's good on the ball, a very good passer. And he joined from Lincoln, where he'd spent the last couple of seasons at Lincoln. But prior to that, he'd amassed nearly 150 league games for Stevenage. So it's the, the return, not of the prodigal son, so I don't think there was much ill feeling here, but certainly the return of a player who'd moved on from Stevenage to seemingly better things. But at the age of 28 now, is back at the club when they desperately need him after a poor start to the season. And his return has led to a much improved little little runner form, very small runner form for Stevenage. His first game came in on the 14th of November, so two came two games ago, and they got a point away at Morecambe. He then scored in an unfortunate home defeat against Bolton, but he absolutely ran the show on Tuesday night. He got an assist. He was the player who made things tick in the middle of the park for Stevenage. And for 
for the club, for Stevenage, for Alex Revel as well, a, a rookie manager who is clearly having a very tough time at the moment, who, and who probably is slightly concerned for his immediate future. Having a player who knows the club, having a player who the fans share this affinity for in pet, and having a guy who, who effectively is just adding a little bit of quality in that centre midfield, just playing in behind the, the front two, it could be you know the catalyst for that run of form that we think they deserve and we think that they need. And this early evidence they could get there as well. So Tom Pett, the the player of League Two, but credit goes to all of Stevenage and Alex Revel as well. George, would you say that Tom Pett has really improved Stevenage's fortunes recently? I would say that, yes. And would you say that Stevenage were in something of a sticky situation before his arrival? Yeah, they were playing on a sticky wicket, I would agree, yeah. Hmm. Sounds like pet rescue to me. It does. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. I could hear you. I could, I could hear you trying to interrupt me to say that whilst I was talking as well. You were so excited. <laughs> before, uh, b- before we do move on, I should also say, rather than just talking around it, his his assist for Danny Newton as well was absolute quality, like a beautiful through ball splitting the defence um, and, and more passes like that. And it certainly will be. Um, but yeah, I'm still smarting after your terrible pun there, but very good. <laughs> Let's move on to manager of the midweek in League Two, and it is Ian Holloway. Now, he certainly was not the manager of the weekend in League Two. His Grimsby side were thrashed 5-0 by Tranmere Rovers. And a post-match interview afterwards that was a tough listen. You can feel the emotion from Holloway at the moment. It's clear that he's thrown himself into things with Grimsby with the passion that you'd expect and it's clearly hurting at the tough start but I think also at the way in which something so out of his control has impacted him and what he was hoping to do at Grimsby the issues that they've had with Covid not just in terms of budgets which every team has, has suffered with but also in terms of, of how it's undermined them um, and, and, and how it's affected the squad a month or so ago has obviously not helped and uh, and it, it was a tough listen to be honest Holloway is someone that, that wears his heart on his sleeve I think we know and uh, he's had a tough time recently he's uh, he lost a friend, which he spoke about at length uh, in a post-match interview the other day. So this game, going down to Crawley, going 1-0 down early and winning 2-1 is a huge triumph. And Holloway didn't disappoint in his post-match interview. Well, my wife and I watch a lot of films and um, Flash Gordon comes to mind. He only had 14 hours to save the world. Flash, we've got 14 hours to save the world. We had an hour and a half training session. So I don't think I've ever been quite prouder than that. And even the blokes put it in the top bin after about a minute. So it could have turned to hell on earth, but confidence is amazing. If you had a bottle of it and you could sell it, you'd probably get more than the COVID virus uh, vaccine. You'd be more of a millionaire than that. Um, But all I can say is uh, we've managed to come back and beat a very good team on their own turf. And I know... They lost on the weekend, but they hadn't lost before that for quite a while. So, and I honestly believe we deserved it. So, so yeah, really thrilled to see Grimsby pick up all three points here, and just a demonstration of a group of players who are clearly playing for their manager. I think those are the questions that you ask yourself after a five-nil defeat on the weekend. Are they playing for him? That the collapse suggested that potentially not, but no. When you go 1-0 down to a good Crawley side, and they are the sort of side as well that can really rack up the goals if you're not at it, 
and you go down 1-0 early off the back of that 5-0 win, if this group of Grimsby players weren't playing for Ian Holloway, that, that could easily have ended up with another 5-0 defeat. So to rally so impressively, to pick up a big win and three points, I can imagine that was a, a, a much more pleasant bus journey home on Tuesday night. Well done, Ian Holloway, League 2 manager of the midweek. In the very specific world of Grimsby Town, you saved the world on Tuesday night. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. Sponsored by Paddy Power. Okay, so time to just pause from the football itself for a few minutes because we're delighted to be joined by Phil Buckingham, who's a writer for The Athletic. And the reason we wanted Phil on the pod uh, this week is because he's written an amazing profile piece on a young man who is heavily linked to be part of a takeover at Sunderland, Kirill Louis-Dreyfus. And it's brilliant to be joined by Phil to talk us through it, really, because, um, well, this is potentially pretty big news up in Sunderland and for the whole of the EFL. And we, we always want to learn more about potential new owners in the EFL. So, Phil, firstly, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. No problem. Nice to speak to you. And let's start on Kirill Louis-Dreyfus. It's a hell of a name and it's a hell of a story, really. This is a 23-year-old who is, as you've written, understood to be considering taking on majority shareholding uh, shareholding in Sunderland. At firstly, just on the situation itself, Sunderland fans have been wanting a change of ownership for a long time. The owner himself, Stuart Donald, has outwardly said that he wants a change, wants to sell up, but hasn't made a huge amount of progress on, on that note. What can you tell us about the current situation when it comes to a Sunderland takeover? I know that fans are crossing their fingers that there's some, some news soon. Well, Stuart Donald's been the owner since uh, 2018. And for the vast majority of that time, he's been looking for either investment or a change in ownership. Um, the last 12 months, he's been um, very clear on that, that I think he's listened to supporters who want him out and he's he's ready to leave when his asking price is met. There's been a succession of nearly takeovers, if you want to put it that way. Um, a, a lot of clubs have entered, sorry, a lot of parties have entered into due diligence and haven't got very far. So there is ultimately a, a bit of scepticism amongst supporters. You know, up in the northeast, of it's not been running as, as for as long as the Mike Ashley thing at Newcastle, but I think the thirst for change is, is just as sharp. And if if Kira Louis Dreyfus can come in and inject some life back into the club, that's what it needs, I think, because it's, it's turned into such a stale club. When I think when Stuart Donald first came in that first season in League One, it was so close to being the perfect year for him in terms of. He could sort out the club's mess, flip it and sell it on. 
Sunderland are back in the championship and everyone's a winner and obviously they lost that playoff final to Charlton at Wembley and it's slowly unravelled since then. A poor season last year and this season isn't going as planned either so it needs it needs fresh impetus and it needs a change of ownership. You've written a brilliant piece on The Athletic which kind of profiles Louis Dreyfus and who he is and what he's about and he's, he's 23 years old so very young and, and one of the three heirs to the Louis Dreyfus company you mention a passion for football manager in the piece as well but he also has a few other kind of less uh, less virtual ties to football as well doesn't he sure um i didn't know an awful lot about kira louis dreyfus until about 10 days ago but researching him i found him a an interesting young man i think to understand the louis dreyfus empire you have to understand that this isn't a, a young man born with a silver spoon in his mouth in in the traditional sense that the louis dreyfus clan like to send their heirs off into the real world they like to send them into internships in within the company and send them out into, around the world with education now don't get me wrong he lives in a world that me and you will never know but i think i think there is an attempt within that family to always ground their children. And Kirill Louis-Dreyfus lost his father in 2009, who at the time was Marseille's majority shareholder. His mother, Margarita, took on that shareholding in, in Marseille. And it was around that time that, that the football bug bit him. You know, he, he spent a lot of time around the, the football club. He, he did a work experience at the training ground, ferrying people around when he was, I think it was 13, 14. You know, players know him from that time. He was he was a presence around the dressing room. He, he would travel to away games on the on the team's plane. I think perhaps most tellingly, um, the president at the time, uh, Vincent Lebrun, almost became a father figure to to Kirill Louis Dreyfus. He would involve him in transfer talks and and contract negotiations, and he he would sort of sit and observe all this. So, for all, he's a twenty three year old man. You know, without the hands on experience of football, you know, he's never run a football club before. Why would you at 23? He knows plenty and um, I'm not suggesting for a second that this makes him well qualified to come and take over a club like Sunderland, but to dismiss him just as a as a wide-eyed 23-year-old would, would perhaps be a bit unfair. As you note in the piece, he's clearly determined to be involved in football and you, you said the word unqualified there. I mean, he did make some steps to further educate himself in the world of football and in the UK as well. He was at Riassa, which is a soccer academy based just within Leeds Carnegie University. And he was there for a year. I found it fascinating that his classmates and fellow pupils weren't really aware who he was until the course went on. And so he mustn't have made an awful lot of his wealth. But, you know, as the piece says, he would he would fly home from Leeds Bradford Airport on his private jet. So he wasn't an easy jet man. I think his classmates were blissfully unaware of his of his wealth for a, for a time. And the fact he's tried to educate him in that himself in that side of it shows where his passions lie. And, you know, speaking to people in France, his, you know, his, his passion for Mar- Marseille is still immense. Um, it didn't end well for his family there in the end. I think ultimately his, his mother, Margarita, did not have the passion for football that his father did and you know, by all accounts she's she's more inclined to go to the opera than to a, to a game of football but Marseille got under his skin and, and football got under his skin and, and you know as, as a youngster as well I mean I've since learned that he he played for Grasshopper Zurich in, in in their academy when he was a young man and he was he was he was a fairly handy central midfielder as well when he was at this this soccer academy in, in Yorkshire as well so I don't think he was ever going to be a professional footballer, but I think a, a life in professional football 
always appeal to him. Looking at this now, I mean, you've spoken about the desire for Stuart Donald to sell the club for change at Sunderland. Um, would this, if this takeover does go through, would this be the definitive end of the likes of Donald and Methven's involvement at Sunderland? No, it doesn't seem that way. This would only be a majority shareholder and, and, and Stuart Donald would retain, or that that's always how it's been, the noises that have come out of the club and, and out in France as well. Stuart Donald's always wanted to get his what he thinks is his money back from, from what he's put into Sunderland, and if that's his view, fair enough. But I think supporters crave a fresh start now and and to, to see the person that they you know that they openly dislike you see support surveys about how they feel about Stuart Donald he doesn't have many allies in the northeast anymore so to see him retain a shareholder in the club i don't think many fans see that as the perfect solution but if he was to relinquish control and give the club into new hands you know the the running of it day to day then i think that's sort of meeting halfway. It's almost getting toxic there now where Stuart Donald did a very good job in that first year in terms of fan engagement and breathing life into the club when it needed it most, you know, when it was it fell out of the championship dismally so. And in that first season, he, he did everything he promised in terms of, you know, speaking regularly at fan events and, and now he's just disappeared. And so he's 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 doing exactly the opposite of, of what he, he said he would come here and do. And in that sense, it all just feels a bit rudderless now. You know, the club's effectively run by Jim Rodwell, who's the CEO now. And Stuart Donald is, you know, is, is rarely seen in the North East anymore. Obviously, he has the ultimate say on, on things at Sunderland still. But I think it, it would be in, a, in everyone's interest to to close this chapter now. Absolutely. Well, it's worth keeping an eye on. We'll be locked to... Your, uh, your writing on the Athletic site for more updates and also on the question surrounding fans getting back into EFL grounds. Some encouraging news this week, uh, which you wrote about a couple of days ago. And actually, by the time this podcast comes out, we might have more information on the exact hows and whys and whens and wheres and all of those other sorts of questions. Uh, but I know you've been talking to a lot of people at clubs, within clubs, Phil, about this. And of course, we are absolutely buzzing to potentially be able to go and watch our teams again. Uh, with the restrictions that we're expected to be put in place, what are the clubs feeling about this? Well, I think it's, it's clear that there aren't going to be many clubs that are allowed 4,000 in the ground. We, as, we, as we saw on Monday, um, if you're in Tier 1, you could have up to 4,000, Tier 2, up to 2,000. And if you're in a Tier 3 you follow a club in tier three then you're still not going to be able to go to games that that i think there's almost like a cut-off point in in the minds of of certainly lower league clubs where they're going to be largely going to be limited to 2000 and that this is almost a step that they they have to take even though i think for for a lot of clubs this is going to end up costing them money you know with in terms of stewarding and, and the the infrastructure they're going to have to put in place. It's not going to be straightforward for a lot of clubs. I think a lot of clubs ran their own pilot events back in um, September ahead of the proposed return of fans in October, but it isn't necessarily a straightforward step. Um, but I think football clubs just feel compelled to take this now because if they just continue behind closed doors, then the, sometimes you, you, if you're going to get to... C, you sometimes have to go via B if that makes sense, and this this is this is a small step towards where we all want to be. We all want to see supporters back in the ground, and 
this is almost like football clubs proving that they can do it on this level and then when the next step comes you know if you look at a club like Tottenham and I think Manchester United have said it as well in an ideal world they think they can get 20 25,000 people back in their stadium you know with with the right things in place but ultimately they have to prove it along the way um you know and if 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 that means these running a what would essentially be a succession of pilot events with with 2000 there or 4000 there that's what football clubs are going to have to do and and it isn't going to be perfect it isn't going to be a, the ideal next step it's it's going to still feel pretty sterile i suspect if we if we are going to get back to to a situation where a lot of football fans are back in stadiums this this is the step they've got to take and i think ultimately it will probably need a vaccine before we see sold out stadiums again and 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 football clubs that feel totally comfortable in, in doing so i'll give you an example like cambridge uh, all being well will be one of the first clubs they have a home game on december the 2nd when when football fans are allowed back in and they, they were one of the clubs that wanted to run a a pilot back in september and in all probability they're going to be capped at 2000 and speaking to the ceo this week that they, he said that they're they're sort of cut-off point for breaking even was 2,100 inside the ground. So they accept that they're going to lose money on these games coming back. He says that, you know, that the toilets aren't safe for social distancing, so they're having to bring in portaloos. That All these little things that add up. And he says that for the first few games back with, with this amount through the gates, they're going to be losing money. Well, fingers crossed, it is the first step on the route back to normality. Thank you very much, Phil, for, for taking the time to speak to us this morning. And we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. So thanks very much there to Phil Buckingham for joining us on the podcast this morning. And do keep your eyes on The Athletic throughout this developing story with fans returning to stadiums. It'll be the first and the best place to find any news coming up. And hopefully very soon, the two and 4,000 capacities will be increased. Before we get into our weekend preview, there's one bit of news we have to talk about, Ali, and that is the managerial Sacking at Shrewsbury Town, Sam Ricketts has uh, has gone. He's left the club after a two-all draw against MK Dons in midweek where they were 2-0 up at half-time. And this has probably felt like it's been on the cards for a while, hasn't it? It has done. And we've spoken about this on this very podcast just a few weeks ago when previewing their game against Swindon. I whipped out a ton of stats which did not reflect very well on Sam Ricketts and his reign really at Shrewsbury. I don't think that this can be called a a, a sort of a decision taken without consideration or care because the form has been bad for almost a full calendar year. In fact, since Christmas Day, they've played 27 league games, Shrewsbury, and picked up just 19 points. Now, that is well under a point per game, and that is clearly relegation form. They find themselves 13 games into the season on nine points, having won one game and drawn six. And... I think that the the only thing that's different from when we spoke about this a few weeks ago is that that was ahead of what felt like a a bit of a relegation six-pointer to the extent that a game like that can be at this early stage of the season. They had just drawn one all with Burton with a 90th-minute equaliser, a poor performance, but managed to to rally and get that point. And against Swindon, they were 3-1 up. They scored 
three goals, which has ba- barely ever happened under Ricketts. And they were looking good. But as soon as Swindon pulled one back after 61 minutes, you just felt like the writing was on the wall. And sure enough, it was a an injury time equaliser from Swindon, a team that they really wanted or needed to beat, I suppose. Then they went to Ipswich and took an early lead from the penalty spot, which they clung on to until the 75th minute um, before conceding an equaliser and then losing the game in the 97th minute. And against MK Dons in midweek, 2-0 up after 49 minutes. And I don't think any fan, I don't think any EFL observer was surprised at all that Milton Keynes put the pressure on and came back and drew 2-2. When you're performing like that, when you've taken the lead in games, it doesn't reflect very well on how much the, the players are either playing for the manager, to use that expression, or understanding of the game plan and understanding of how they are going to see games out and win games. Uh, and it, it's not been good enough. So I don't think there'll be too many tears shed amongst the Shrewsbury fan base. We're certainly not surprised, I have to admit, uh, even if we, we don't like to see managers lose their jobs. And it's interesting, um, you know, it's still early days in terms of finding a replacement, but Paul Hurst is towards the top of the betting. And maybe that's no surprise because of the success that Hurst brought the club uh, just a few years ago before leaving them uh, somewhat in the lurch and leaving for Ipswich. Um, I'm not sure what the sort of uh, what the legacy there is with Hurst because of the way that he left. But just in purely footballing terms, I'm sure fans would be pretty happy to have the Hurst Shrewsbury back on the pitch and trying to stay up in League One this season because they've done well to establish themselves at this level, uh, having moved up uh, not too long ago, a few seasons ago. So plenty of work for whoever comes in to do Sam Ricketts out at Shrewsbury Town. On this week's From the Horse's Mouth podcast, the lads are joined by Shane Lowry, fresh from his master's performance at Augusta. Here's what Shane's caddy was too scared to say to Tiger Woods after his disastrous 10 on the 12th. Because any time he hit a bad drive or an average drive, he'd say to Joe's caddy, that was like one of yours. And we stood on the 13th tee and Bo said to me, what do you think he'd say if I said to him, I bet you wish Joe had that one? (laughs) (laughs) Search Paddy Power on your podcast provider to listen now. Paddy Power. 18plusbgovernorware.org. Listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell, sponsored by Paddy Power. And as soon as one round of fixtures ends, it feels like another begins. A full slate of championship fixtures in the EFL this weekend. Very much a reduced slate of League One and League Two games with plenty involved in FA Cup action. We're going to talk about the games that we are most excited about. The games we're most intrigued by. George, what have you chosen for the championship this week? I am incredibly excited and so intrigued by this one. So you've chosen the right two words there. I mean, I think I might be the only person in the land who is, but Derby against Wickham strikes me as just a fascinating encounter at such an interesting time for both sides in the championship. Now, our sponsors, Paddy Power, have Derby as the 8-11 to favourites. The draw is 5-2 to and Wickham 100-30. I would urge caution to those thinking that this is going to be a slam dunk easy Derby home win. And for that reason, I'll start with Wickham, who have kind of done the reverse of what I expected them to do this season. Normally, when you get a side who are punching above their weight, 
riding the quest the, the crest of a wave um i'm not going to use the word momentum ali because i know you don't like it but that is effectively what i'm getting at here you know we saw it we've seen it plenty of times with t- the teams coming up from uh, from the championship into the premier league think back to blackpool normally you know when a club like wickham reach this goal and they are punching above their weight normally they carry forward the early season form before it all starts to regress and dip down and then you know the, the, the season kind of fizzles away and Wickham didn't start like that. Wickham were frankly appalling to start the season. Teams were creating chances at will against them. They were toothless going forward. They didn't get the rub of the green, it's fair to say, with some marginal refereeing decisions. I wouldn't say any of them were absolute clangers, um, no matter what Joe Jacobson might, might have thought on the podcast a couple of weeks ago or last week. But... Um, but things have changed. Things have changed at Wickham. They are now the Wickham that we saw last season where team they had just an absolute nightmare for teams to play against. You look at their fir- their last five games. They beat Sheffield Wednesday. Sorry, last six games, I should say, after you know the Watford game, which they deserved to win live on Sky. They then beat Sheffield Wednesday and beat Birmingham. They went down 2-0 against Nottingham Forest. But again, in the last two games, they might just be 0-0 jaws. They played against two sides in Brentford and Huddersfield who have... N- you know, better attacking prospects than most in this division. Huddersfield's issue this season has been their defence. Brentford's um, certainly with Ivan Tony have probably the best goal scorer in the division, and with the likes of Bomo and De Silva alongside as well, there's no denying their attacking qualities. So, but Wickham were deserving of their point in both games, and they made life very, very awkward, and they created chances as well in both of them too. So this is a Wickham side who at the moment. I think they're kind of like a mid-table team in the championship, the way that they're playing. And whether that's, you know, I'm putting it down in part to Adebayak and Fenwood's arrival in the team, or whether it's just in part to them getting used to and maybe just believing in themselves a bit at this level after the wins against Sheffield Wednesday and Birmingham. Whatever happened in that Watford game that, again, was live, maybe it was the fact it was on TV, it just seems to have proven to be what they needed to kickstart their season. And this is just an incredibly awkward game for Derby now to come into because no matter what what I think, no matter what you think, Ali, Derby fans are coming into this thinking, this is Wickham at home, this is the easiest game of the season. You know, this has to be three points. They've only won one game in the league so far in the campaign. That was an away win at Norwich due to a Wayne Rooney free kick when Derby barely laid a glove on Norwich for the whole game. Their last couple of, of matches have been absolutely desperate. They haven't scored in their last four any signs of a of a, a kind of a rejuvenation under um, Rossinier and Rooney that we saw on Saturday against Bristol City, where they where they were better, but but went down one nil. Um, you know, you've spoken about the, the Middlesbrough victory earlier on in the show, but Middlesbrough just dispatched them with such ease. Derby struggling to create anything of note, and given their attacking frailties, you wouldn't be surprised if they struggled to create anything of note again here. Steve McLaren has been appointed technical director of the club. I, I given the you know the uh the continued talk of, of a takeover, I, I don't really understand who Steve McLaren works for, if it's the current board or the one coming in, if he's been brought in to work alongside a manager or if he's just here to oversee the caretaker duo before the takeover and a new manager is appointed. At the moment, Paddy Power have John Terry as the four to five favourite ahead of Sam Allardyce and Wayne Rooney at 130 and seven to two. Eddie Howe six to one. John Gregory and Rafa Benitez both now 
eleven to one. I mean, I don't know about you, but I struggle to see Sam Allardyce or Rafa Benitez or even John Gregory working under the watchful eye of Steve McLaren. You have to assume if this is going to be a long-term appointment, the likes of Terry, of Rooney, possibly of Rossini are the ones who are likely to get the job. But on the basis of what we what we saw last night you'd have to think that Wayne Rooney's chances of, of, of getting this job probably hinge on this game. It's, it's unlikely, in my opinion, to see him appointed after failing to beat Wickham Wanderers. So you know, maybe Derby could do no worse than, than having a look at the guy who'll be in the opposition dugout on Saturday, uh, Gareth Ainsworth, who continues to do a magnificent job at the club. Um, this is just a, a really interesting and unlikely case of a a relegation battle, which which you have to say at the moment it is. Um, we're not in the business of tipping on this podcast, but as I say, that 8-11 to 11 for a Derby side who struggled to create chances against a team who seemed to be very capable at keeping better championship championship teams at bay does seem slightly on the skinny side. It could be mm. a big old banana skin this for Rooney and co. Got another game in which Paddy Power have a strong favourite and it's Friday night's live TV game between Brentford and QPR. Brentford are four to seven favourites with QPR's away win priced up at four to one by Paddy's uh, and the draw 13 to five. We've mentioned Brentford earlier in the show and an impressive defensive performance against a good Barnsley side. That that one nil win should not be sniffed at, but fans who are watching them at the moment can't help but notice that things are just a little bit sticky, a little bit stodgy. And specifically when we talk about Brentford, that is a change from what we've seen from them consistently over the last, what, three to five years now? And that is fluid attacking play, play that creates a lot of chances. They've almost flipped that now. There was a a feeling that they had a a bit of a soft centre for a few years that's just been banished over the last 18 months um, after... Well, maybe Pontus Janssen takes the credit. Maybe Christian Norgaard takes some credit. Maybe Thomas Frank takes a lot of credit. But now we're seeing a, 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 a solid B-side that are struggling a little to create the chances that they used to. But in Ivan Tony, they've got a match winner. They've got someone who's taking those chances. And that's what happened against Barnsley. Prior to that, it was three draws in a row, though. And two of them nil-nil draws. So plenty to improve on for Brentford if they are to get back towards the top of the table where many thought they might be pre-season they're up against their local rivals QPR just the right side of inconsistent at the moment QPR I would say at their best like in the first half against Rotherham in midweek they can be scintillating they can be really exciting when I say Samuel and Ilias Chair are in full flow combining and beating players they really are magnificent to watch but there's too much of the other side of that I'm afraid there's too many performances where it's hard to know really what the plan is, where players seem to go missing and when the defence looks a little bit dodgy. So we're not sure which QPR will turn up here. Um, They've won four, lost four and drawn five in the league this season. The most concerning stat for me is that they haven't beaten anyone above 18th place yet. So the fact that they are sort of mid-table, it might be a little bit of a smokescreen because they've played a lot of teams down the bottom. They've beaten them generally, but they're really struggling against anyone um, who's who's decent, to be quite honest with you. Um, more more nice links here between the two sides, of course. Mark Warburton is the QPR manager. He was sporting director and then manager at Brentford, very much a part of the, the journey that they've been on in the last decade. QPR fans like to say that Brentford is just a bus stop in Hounslow, but bees have won the last three <laughs> between these two sides. So that sort of ribbing is going to 
be quashed even further if Bees can pick up another win. Paddy Power have them as strong favourites, as mentioned. And I'm really looking forward to watching this one. It's going to be another one of those games that we've seen recently where we bemoan the lack of fans, a game under the lights, of course. It'd be fantastic to hear that crackling atmosphere, but hopefully it won't be long until we do. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that next week on this very podcast. George, in League One this weekend, what catches your eye? Well, it's an easy choice. It's a game we spoke about uh, a couple of weeks ago before it was COVID postponed. It is the A420 derby and it's Oxford United against Swindon Town. And I must say, a week or so ago, when we recorded the podcast before the first um, the first attempt to play this game, and we had Ivo Graham on as well, and Richie Wellens was Swindon manager, and Oxford were not playing very well, I was not looking forward to it because Oxford's record over Swindon is so good in recent times. Oxford fans will tell you it's seven wins in a row. Swindon will point out to the EFL trophy game in the middle that Oxford fans like to ignore because they say it's not a senior competition. I'll let you guess which camp I'm in. I think I know that I'm probably in the wrong camp, but either way, um, this is a massive derby game. And um, a week ago when, when John Sheridan took over and we saw Swindon losing calamitously at home to Accrington 3-0. I was getting quite excited about this one, but there have been signs, I would say, under Sheridan that Swindon have been improving. On Saturday, they beat Bristol Rovers 1-0 at home in a very, very scrappy game with Brett Pittman getting the goal. On Tuesday, they played at home to Lincoln, a side that we have a lot of time for and are currently third in the league. And Swindon created a fair few chances. It was a pretty even game overall with, with Lincoln coming out on top with a set-piece goal. So... Certainly, I'm not feeling any more like Swindon are the the hopeless cause that maybe I hoped um, they looked last week. But for Oxford, things are improving as well. After a really poor performance at home to Crewe in a 2-0 defeat, they've then gone and beaten Wigan on the road 2-1, uh, a, a scoreline that doesn't necessarily reflect the level of dominance Oxford had in that game, and then got a really good point away at Portsmouth on Tuesday night. Now, Pompey had enough chances to win this one. There's no denying that at all. Oxford started the brighter, but as Portsmouth have a way of doing, despite Oxford enjoying a lot of the ball, they didn't create too much. And despite Pompey not seeing too much of the ball, every time they went forward, they seemed to create a meaningful attack. The goal came from a an Alex Gorin penalty, um, his only second goal in his, in his professional career, the last coming at Wellington Phoenix back in 2017. Carl Robinson not shying away from the fact that he wasn't too happy to see that it was Alex Gorin grabbing the ball when the penalty was given and all three of his penalty takers were on the bench behind him. So we, we practiced penalties yesterday? Yeah. Anthony Ford was a penalty taker and James Henry was a penalty taker and we thought if they were on the pitch Matty Taylor would be the penalty taker. So all three penalty takers were behind me. I was going, oh sugar. And then what, what worried me even more, I had no, I had no faith in Alex. I see him every day, miss. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, gaffa, gaffa, I can take penalties. That's the worst Spanish accent you've ever heard. And he, uh, he, he practised it and missed. <laughs> and then he took a great free kick and put it in the top corner. Uh, but you know what? All joking aside, he was exceptional. Yes, he, was. he was exceptional. You'd go into battle with him, wouldn't you? Every single day of the week. And uh, that's his first goal for the football club. It is. Yeah, it's only his third shot, I think. <laughs> I remember the other two. I think, I think the, the Jim Smith sign behind the goal, the other two. Obviously... Everyone at the club and at both clubs is gutted that this will be in front of an empty stadium. It is a big derby game for those who might doubt it. Uh, and it's the only place that I will be 
looking on Saturday afternoon. I'm already nervous and feeling a little bit sick thinking about it. I cannot process the idea of watching Swindon Town beating Oxford United. It's something that hasn't happened for a long time. And yeah, Oxford are the five to six favourites, which does nothing for my nerves. The draw 13 to five and Swindon 11 to four to get their first win in this game for about two decades. <laughs> Friday night, Fleetwood against Sunderland. That's where I'm looking in League One. Now I'm going to read off a selection of names to you now. I think you'll recognise... All of them, Glenn Whelan, Paul Coots, Mark Duffy, Barry Mackay and Ched Evans. All very recognisable players at this level and at higher levels in recent years. But those are the players that came off Fleetwood Town's bench last weekend. And that is a good way of demonstrating not only the strength and depth that Joey Barton has at his disposal, but also, I think, the performances of maybe some of the less heralded players, maybe some of the less experienced players, the likes of Callum Camps and Sam Finlay, who are who are playing magnificently uh, in midfield. This squad has been built with a mix of experience and players in their prime, and they're in very, very good form indeed. They've won five of their last six league games, Fleetwood, and after a really slow start, they are just easing their way towards the top of the table where they finished last season, losing ultimately in the playoffs to Wickham after just a crazy first leg um, where they really wet the bed, I think it's fair to say. Sunderland are on the same points tally as Fleetwood also on 22 points and they've played a game less but I think the atmosphere around the two clubs is markedly different at the moment Sunderland experiencing a bit of a blip there's no two ways about it they lost from a winning position against MK Dons two weekends ago and then of course last weekend they gave up another lead conceded late to Doncaster so they've lost a bit of that early season defensive solidity and there's not ha there's not enough happening going forward to mitigate that and it's a bit of an issue for Phil Parkinson because the pressure from the fan base is growing and growing to the point where I've been told that almost every single Sunderland fan would now say they would like to see a change of manager so a lot of pressure on, a big game against a very good opposition. It calls for a big Sunderland performance and we'll wait and see whether that will come. The potential new owner, of course, we've just heard about and maybe that might be the reason why Phil Parkinson is, is staying on as manager, just trying to, to work out what's happening with that takeover before making any big decisions from a footballing perspective. But regardless, they have some excellent players. They have played very well at times this season they have it in them to put in a good performance and it's a fascinating game it might feel like the momentum is with Fleetwood Town given their form against Sunderland's but I think it's going to be very very difficult for Fleetwood to win this game they're 15 to 8 with Paddy Power to do so Sunderland still the favourites at 7 to 5 and the draw 21 to 10 Guys, we're absolutely spoilt for choice when it comes to League Two fixtures to preview this weekend. Two games in total, two smashing games as well. Port Vale against Leighton Orient and Bolton against Southend. We fought over which one we would chat about. George, you won. You can go first. Talk to me about Vale against Orient. 
Yeah, well, we'll let people in to what actually happens here, where, where you and I have a shared document for planning, and, and we, we both write what we can, what games we've chosen so we can see it. And for the first time ever, when I looked yesterday, you'd put my game in for me. You, you just stuck in Port Vale Orient. So I sent you an angry text being like, mate, why have you, why have you just given me Port Vale against Leighton Orient? I'm, I'm not sure I really want that. And then I realised it's the only game I could have because you've taken the other one. What a game it is as well. What a fixture for League Two fans across the land. I knew you'd like it. versus 11th. That is right up my street. Uh, but there, there is a lot of intrigue here. Um, you know, I think I could probably find intrigue for myself at least. Maybe you'd disagree in any game in the EFL. And for Port Vale, a, a, a club aside who many had... You know, they were one of those teams who so many people were calling them the dark horse. I'm not sure you could call them a dark horse, really. Uh, and things started okay for them, but they are on an alarming slide. They've lost their last four games against Tranmere, Scunthorpe, Newport and Stevenage. So in with Scunthorpe and Stevenage in there, two of the poorest sides in the division have both got the better of Port Vale recently. And it's the age-old problem for Port Vale. They are struggling for goals. Devante Rodney is the is leading the goal scoring charts at the moment with three goals. They just don't have anybody who can be clinical, who can be prolific at this level, and they are still so reliant on David Worrell's delivery for their creation as well. He's got five assists, but it feels like if you stop Worrell, you kind of stop Port Vale as well. And this is a difficult fixture for them because Leighton Orient were on their own poor run of form before back-to-back wins, both at home against Harrogate and Bradford. So Leighton Orient not popular up in Yorkshire at the moment. But this, I mean, this Leighton Orient side is one, maybe unlike Port Vale, that just feels to me like it's full of quality. Uh, Daniel Happer, who he's spoken about a fair amount as a centre-back at 22 years old, a left-footed centre-back who I'm, I'm pretty sure will be playing in League One or even in the Championship come next season. He's a really, really classy operator, scored a goal on Saturday as well. Connor Wilkinson becoming more and more popular there as well. He's a, he's a real live wire uh, off the right-hand side. And of course, I haven't even mentioned the goal machine, Danny Johnson, who's now got 9-13 and 13 after his hat-trick on Saturday. Led Norrent seems to be trending in the right direction. They're moving up the division. They're up in eighth now and have their sights set on a playoff place, whereas Port Vale are sliding downwards. Uh, the odds here suggest that Port Vale are the likely winners, probably because of their home advantage at 11 to 10, the draw 23 to 10, Leighton Orient 12 to 5 with Paddies. And you do kind of feel like this is a big game for Port Vale. For Leighton Orient, maybe a bit of a free hit, but for Port Vale, they need to stop this slide. They need to stop this run of form. And they're playing against one of the sides that they want to be competing against at that kind of playoff area of the division. But a defeat here is going to make that seem a long, long way away. Southend visit Bolton in the big game this weekend in League Two. And it's a Wanderers side who are enjoying the month of November, certainly in contrast to October and September, which didn't go so well for them. But it's three wins in a row heading into this game with a lot of confidence and really growing into their style of play under Ian Everett. Matt Jilks taking the gloves off the young goalkeeper Billy Krellin has seemingly made a, a huge difference both in terms of his shot stopping uh, but also I think just his mere presence and how vocal he is in organising his team appears to have, have given a lot of confidence to Bolton's backline. 
and they're creating more chances as well. Owen Doyle was the star man at this level last season and he is starting to grow into this season, I think it's fair to say. Southend at the very bottom of the division. They've got five points from 13 games. It's a continuation of a horrendous season last year where they suffered relegation in League One. There was a, a flicker of optimism after their first win at Walsall two weeks ago. Uh, since then, they missed a game due to COVID absences and then lost to Forest Green midweek. So we'll find out how much that optimism has been extinguished as they travel to this confident Bolton side. It's not a good time for them to come up against Wanderers, I must say. They'll need a lot of resilience in the back line. They might need some heroics from the goalkeeper, Oxley, and they might need a bit of magic maybe from Aqua, who scored the winner against Walsall, or Goodchip up front as well. Paddy Power... Pretty clear on where they think this one will go. Bolton, the 8-13 to favourites. And Southend, 4-1 to to win the game with the draw. 11-4. to Plenty to look forward to ahead of the EFL weekend. Please feel free to get in touch and tell us which game you think is set up to be a cracker. And in classically breathless fashion, when we've had a midweek round of fixtures, it's time to end today's Totally Football League show, Extra Time. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed. You won't only get us banging on about pre-caps and recaps and reviews and previews, but you'll also get some proper pundits on a Monday talking about the weekend that we've previewed now. So do subscribe, do join us next week. We really, really hope that there will be some very positive news about fans back in the grounds. In fact, it's possible that on Wednesday night, ahead of a Thursday morning recording, we might have already experienced something on that. So, have a great weekend. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Please do subscribe. We'll talk again next week. You've been listening to the Totally Football League Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and following at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all the Athletics football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. Surly Football League Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.